Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 229 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, this is uh, fun to have Larry Osborne back on the podcast. But what's really fun is that a couple of weeks ago, I spent, uh, well, the better part of three days with him in San Diego and a handful of other leaders. And it was, it was incredible. You know, I've taught with Larry before. We've spoken at the same conferences. I've interviewed him for this podcast. But it was the most time we've ever spent together. And you know what's really nice? It's nice when your respect for somebody grows after you spend time with them, not uh, diminishing. And I have pages of notes from things that Larry said over those three days and, and others obviously in the room that, that were so great. I wanna share one with you uh, before we jump into today's episode that isn't covered uh, by this interview, which, which I think you're gonna love. Um, but Larry, Larry, we were talking about like developing senior leaders and he's been at this for decades now. And he said, you know where a lot of leaders struggle? He says, and this is true in business, it's true in the church. He said, we end up with like vice presidents or, you know, executive pastors or ministry directors. Uh, but he says, what every church needs is at least one co-pilot. And he used the analogy of a transatlantic flight. So, you know, if you're flying to Europe, guess what? There are four co-pilots in the cockpit, in the flight deck. And if the main pilot goes out, guess what? Someone else can fly the plane. And I don't know, that was just so clarifying because when you think through your team, here's the question to ask is, do I have a co-pilot? And if not, what's it going to take to get it? Not just someone who can run their division or department or whatever, but like who can fly the plane. Isn't that helpful? Uh, I found that incredible. There's, there's so much more and you're going to get a lot of wisdom in this interview. And one of the most curious things is like, Larry, why do you never use an alarm clock? He's going to talk about that as well. So welcome to the podcast. Glad you guys are here this week. I think you're going to find this super helpful. If you want to share it, please do uh, take a screenshot on Instagram and share it. Or I, I talked to so many of you on the road this fall who said, hey, every time there's an episode, like my staff gets it. So share it via social email, however you do that. Thank you for doing that. And thanks for leaving ratings and reviews as well. Well, guys, you know what? I want to talk to you about the future because 2019 is almost here. And, uh, you know, strong leadership requires a strong engagement strategy. So what are you doing about engagement? Because engagement just isn't like about Sunday. There are seven days a week and a lot of churches behave like you only have one opportunity. Well, that requires a mobile strategy, a giving strategy and an engagement strategy. And that's where PushPay can help. They're leaders at keeping our industry at the cutting edge of technology. They are bringing so much good into the church world and they have a huge heart to serve the church. They've helped more than 7,000 customers process billions of dollars in generosity last year. And I think by moving to digital giving, you're going to see an automatic increase in giving overnight. I really believe that. So right now there's a special offer for listeners of this podcast. Go to pushpay.com slash carry. That's pushpay.com slash carry. And you can sign up to talk to a rep who has a special offer for my listeners. No obligation, just a chance to talk to an expert in church technology. Check them out, pushpay.com slash carry. And also uh, speaking about 2019 and how about your budget year, if you're a senior or executive pastor, you're trying to figure out how to fund your next big growth project, here's something that doesn't come along very often. 
savings, okay? Like massive savings. So let's say you're trying to hire a new youth pastor, a children's pastor, or maybe you've got a building project. Remodel Health is a new technology solution offering unique health insurance benefits platforms that's saving most churches 30 to 50% on their health insurance costs while giving better benefits to employees. On average, they help most churches free up between sixty dollars to $100,000 per year to repurpose toward projects that can help you do more in your ministry. They're also trusted partners of MediShare, an affiliate of Brotherhood Mutual, so you know you're working with the very best. Now, what you can do there if you're interested in like freeing up fifty dollars to $100,000 worth of cash uh, for ministry next year, visit remodelhealth.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to find out more, you'll get a free quote and a buying guide. So just go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. And thank you to PushPay and Remodel Health for bringing you this episode for free. Well, and you guys are smart. You know that nothing is free. This show is professionally produced. We have show notes, transcripts, and PushPay and Remodel Health help bring that to you for free, which is my commitment to you. So thanks, guys, for helping us out with that. And thank you for checking them out. In the meantime, I'm going to dive into my interview with Larry Osborne. For those of you who are meeting him for the first time, Larry is an incredible, you know, he spends a lot of time being a mentor these days uh, to a lot of great leaders. I just, I love his heart. He is the lead pastor at North Coast Church in Vista, California, north of San Diego. They've grown to over 12,000 on a weekend. He is the author of many books like Lead Like a Shepherd, which is what we're going to talk about today, Sticky Church, Sticky Teams, Sticky Leaders, and so much more. Uh, So here's my conversation with Larry Osborne. Well, it is just fantastic to have Larry Osborne back to the podcast. Larry, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, well, uh, you've been at this for a while, um, decade. How, how many years in ministry for you now, like in leadership? Oh, gee, o- over 40 in vocational ministry, and I've been at North Coast Church uh, 38 years. That's incredible. Man, I mean, there, there's not a lot of stories like that, and you got a lot of energy. I mean, we've had the chance to hang out at events that we've taught at together, and uh, you have a lot of energy, man. Like you're you're going strong, and I think that kind of is the end game. And so I'd love to start just by saying or asking you this question: What's keeping you fresh and alive this far into vocational ministry? Well, partly I started when I was four years old. So no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're only forty four. That's yeah, right. We all right. forgot that. Um, yeah. You know, I think one of the the things is is simply uh, I was in my early thirties. And I decided I was not going to redline my life, uh, that I was not going to live at full RPM and then find myself exhausted, needing a sabbatical to recharge and then see if I could go through that cycle again. Um, that, that was an important uh, watershed moment, really, for me uh, when I, I decided, you know what, I, I have a role to play during my lifetime. Uh, the kingdom of God is going to go on. Uh, when I'm gone, and it will even go on if I don't accomplish everything every day that is in front of me. Uh, I, I think there is a work ethic sometimes in ministry that uh, can be lazy. We all know that. Mm-hmm. But there's another side of the coin that says I have to seize every opportunity. And there's a difference between what I have the potential to do and what I have the calling to do. Wow. Uh, one of the really goofy things, even way back then, I, a lot of research on sleep. Uh, I decided I'd never have a meeting until uh, 9 a.m. in the morning so that I would never use an alarm clock. And the only time I ever use one is when I travel. 
And I don't know whether I'm going to wake up at 5.30 or I don't know if it's going to be a weird time where I need to sleep until 7.30. And it's been fascinating for me to see the research that's been done in the last five, 10 years on the importance of sleep. Uh, And that was just a a thought of mine. If I would quit thinking everything rises and falls on my effort, uh, do my best and take a nap. uh, And if I could uh, believe that God uh, would give sleep to the righteous and uh, I didn't really need uh, an alarm clock, uh, that that might play itself out on the back end. And that's really where I I feel now. I've never had a sabbatical because I wanted to live so I don't need one. I'm not saying shame on those who have one or turn it down if you get one. Uh, But I I thought, how can I teach the executives and big, uh, big L leaders in my church how to have a margined and balanced life if I can't have it in ministry? Wow. So no alarm clock for 30 years. Like just when you yeah. wake up when you wake up. Yeah. I mean, I'll have one if I have a 430 flight. You know, oh, yeah, sure. Internal clock will catch you. But nope. Um, this morning was, wow, I woke up early and, and got going. Uh, two mornings ago, I was exhausted. I've had a couple of medical things I'm taking some antihistamines for. And uh, it just makes you a little extra tired. And I looked and it was 745, which is, well, that's crazy. <laughs> so I just, the mornings are going to be mine, uh, and then I'll go. So I work a lot of hours, but I'm not exhausted hours. Yeah, that's really good. And do, do you have a, a regular rhythm for a rest day? Like, is that a Friday, a Saturday, a Monday, a Wednesday? I have a rhythm for rest. Uh, I, most of the people who, who write about the importance of kind of rigid uh, systems happen to be on a Myers-Briggs, a J. Uh, and more of a type A personality in every part of their life. And of course, it leaks into their spirituality. And uh, for me, I'm a Myers-Briggs P, the classic entrepreneurial uh, mindset. So what I find uh, refreshment in is is uh, windows of freedom. And I don't know whether that relaxation is going to be on Monday or Friday. But if I schedule it for Friday, it, it's not relaxation. Uh, it's, oh, crud. Now it's a, another uh, checkpoint. I, Kerry, I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. This. Uh, I'm big on judging the fruit, not the watering schedule. And I think one of the things that happens to us in ministry is is we we look at everybody else's watering schedule and try to copy it. But it's a recipe for their personality, for their background, uh, for their spouse, for their children. So if if the fruit is good, I say just keep your goofy watering schedule. <laughs> and if the fruit sucks, well, then Google watering schedule and follow it. So I, when it comes to the disciplines, rhythms, and all that, that's really what I've tried to be. I'm a fruit inspector. And when the fruit's no good, I need to try a different watering schedule. But I'm much more about the fruit than the watering schedule. And I was raised to worry and angst over the watering schedule. It's an interesting perspective, Larry, because, you know, I look at when I'm producing my best stuff. And I, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. So for me, that can look like an 11 a.m. bike ride when everyone's like, aren't you supposed to be at work? Well, am I working? Am I not working? Yes, sort of. I'm relaxing. And often I find in those moments, it's like, you know, I'm on mile 17. And then all of a sudden it's like, aha, got it. And it was worth that thought. And then, you know, I finish up my ride and I go back to work. But like I could tell some other person to try that. It would be a disaster for them. Absolutely. We are so quick to give people our watering schedule. 
How, how did you give yourself permission to live that way, particularly when you were what, in your 30s when you started this? Yeah, I was probably about mid-30s. Uh, okay. A couple of things that happened. Uh, as a youth pastor, I had the largest youth ministry in the two churches that I uh, served, and they were large churches. I started really young. So I had a lot of success in my early 20s. Uh, then I came to uh, North Coast Church, and in the first three years, we grew by one person. <laughs> so uh, suddenly I realized I wasn't quite as cool as I thought I was or as gifted as I thought I was. I went through a lot of kind of depression. Uh, in the spiritual level, the Lord helped me to understand that the same mental math that was making me depressed was the mental math that would have made me arrogant had I had the success I'd previously had or I dreamed of. And so that, that, that put me in a right place to really grasp that my job is to prepare the horse for battle. It's his job to decide whether I win or lose. And then I feel like a little bit I started on third base or at least second base in my life. I don't have a father wound like so many guys, especially in ministry, struggle with. Uh, my dad, who is still alive and healthy, and mom, are, are both they're heroes of mine. Uh, I never felt I was more loved when I was a basketball player. I scored a lot of points or I scored no points. Uh, I, I was loved as his son. Uh, and so that made it easy to have that kind of Jesus uh, for me to understand. And then I had a mentor who poured in me concepts like you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. And kind of all those things came together. I had succeeded, now I'm having failure. Uh, so where am I finding my identity? And then I had a great place to start. No father wound and a mentor who kept saying, Larry, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. And I've tried to pass that on. Did you get weird looks from either your board, staff, colleagues who are like, what? Because I, I bet you, I mean, I, that's still a little bit counterintuitive today, but go back 30 years and that probably you were, you were the outlier. I was very much the outlier. I still probably am in the outlier today, but there's nothing like 13,000 people in your church to cause people to not let cause call you an outlier. Okay. Right, right, so right. the sad thing is, is when we had 150 and it grown by one in three years, no one listened. Right. And then when you start hitting multiple thousands, uh, or write a few books, uh, then people pay you uh, to tell them. It's like, dude, I used to tell you this for free. <laughs> right. There's uh, a lot of truth in that. Yeah, um, that's kind of the sad, sad part is there's a lot of wisdom out there that's not yet backed up by big numbers, and we're not, we don't listen. <laughs> there's a lot of truth in that too. This has come up a few times when we've gotten together and and talked and. I just want to drill down. You mentioned the father wound, that you don't have one. And, and you said it just a few minutes ago, and I think I've heard you say it before, that it seems like there's a lot of pastors who have some kind of father wound. Now, is that just like, hey, 38.9% of the population has a father wound and we're equally distributed in the church for that? Or do you think that there is a disproportionate number? I'm just curious. I mean, you, you work with a lot of church leaders do you think, no, that, that there's a higher number of people with a father wound in ministry? No, I don't think the number is higher. I just think there's a lot of, especially men, obviously, that, yeah. that have that. Um, I think sometimes we live in our little echo chamber, and we think that ministry is particularly hard because we've never had a real job. Uh, we, we think all kinds of things about ministry, but you get, you get a group. My brother was a 
a high-ranking uh, cop, uh, I think number four in the food chain and the third largest department in the world. Wow. And, uh, you know, being a cop was uniquely difficult. Uh, being a uh, in the trades, trying to live the Christian life when other people are fudging on all kinds of things is particularly difficult. Uh, being in a bureaucratic institution, everything's difficult since page three of my Bible. Uh, but I do think that there's an awful lot of father wounds out there where uh, men don't really think that they're okay. And we suddenly believe we're okay when we hit certain performance levels. And, and that's death because we cannot control the outcomes. We could be Samson and uh, have ruled successfully for 18 years and everybody wants to read our books about how to be a great judge and then it all falls in. Uh, and suddenly everybody realizes the truth. Or we could be Joshua, a great man of God who sends an appropriate small little army to Ai and loses, uh, not because he didn't pray, not because he didn't seek the Lord for strategy, because an idiot named Achan had taken a few devoted things and had him under his tent. Uh, I don't, we, don't we, we preach that there's an unseen realm, but I don't think we believe it. We think everything is cause and effect. Hmm. No, I, I think you're right about, like, I meet a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business leaders, and yeah, there's a father wound there too. This, this, what are, what are, and again, this isn't a counseling session. You're not a, well, maybe you are a trained counselor. Uh, what are some signs for those who are listening? Because uh, I've, I've been, I have a great dad like you do, but you know, we all have wounds from our childhood and that was a period process of discovery for me in my thirties, forties, and even through to today. Um, what are some signs that maybe you got to look a little bit deeper if you're a leader who's saying, I don't know whether I have one or not? What would you what would you advise them to look for? I think probably one of the most common things that I find is an insatiable appetite for more and more success. And uh, every time we get there, we feel empty. Uh, we're living Ecclesiastes. Yeah. And and so I, I look at people like, are, are you kidding me? You've only enjoyed the journey. You've never been able to grab any of the brass rings that were in front of you and to enjoy it. What is that about? What, what internal message is telling you you're still not good enough? Um, I, someday I want to write a book called The Things We Preach But Don't Believe. Uh, one of them would be grace. <laughs> Another would be the body of Christ. Uh, uh, another would be our identity in Christ. Uh, but I, I, I think that's probably one of the most uh, important symbols because I don't think being very hyper-competitive is a sign of a father wound or, or goofed up spirituality. I think God made some of us that way. But you can be hyper-competitive and at the end of the day go, I played my best, I lost, you're better than me. And that's healthy. Yeah. Man, until that last whistle blow, blew or the horn went off, whatever it was, I was going to give it all and do everything I can. It's over now. You won. Congratulations. And then there's those people who win a bunch, but when they finally do lose, which happens to all of us, have no ability to put their arms around it and go, well, that's really okay. So that to me would probably be the pre preeminent thing. Uh, those with strong father wounds obviously know that. Uh, they probably have yeah. a debate in their head going on, and you know, their dad's still living there rent-free between their ears. Thank you for that. that. That is helpful and clarifying, I think, for a lot of leaders. You do uh, interact with a lot of young leaders. You're a mentor to uh, some of our mutual friends, which I think is incredible. 
when you look at what young leaders are facing today, how is it different or even is it different than, you know, previous generation when they started out? I don't think it's all that different. Um, sometimes the clothes are different, but you take the clothes off, the body, the skeleton, the internal <laughs> organs are exactly the same. And there's a tendency for every generation to think it's incredibly unique. Uh, and so we have a lot of generational talk. One of my favorites is when people talk about millennials being um, um, highly entitled. Hmm. And I go, really, have you ever met a baby boomer? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's human nature. Uh, did yeah. you ever talk to a builder when they thought their pension was going to be maybe shut down a little bit because they were promised more than the government could really pay them or the organization? We are entitled beings for the first few pages of scripture. So it takes on a different format in each and every cultural situation. And uh, maybe there's a greater emphasis on something in each and every time uh, frame. But I don't think the struggles are all of that, all that different. Um, it's, we live in this little bubble and we only read about the past and we only dream about the future. And we think today is like, whoa, that's, that's all of life. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Someone once said, and God said, print it. That's good. What are some of the repeating patterns that you hear from young leaders? If, if you're like, man, these are two or three that just everybody seems to be struggling with. Uh, what are you seeing? Well, I think high performance leaders uh, tend to never be satisfied over and over. And again, that goes back to the, the father wound. Uh, I think there's a, a, a lot of leaders at all levels, those who don't necessarily have this incredible resume. They're faithful, but, you know, it's been a tough slog. Uh, many times I find in those situations that they, they still live in a little echo chamber. That's always been a problem. Uh, I'd like to describe the problems we face as leaders this way. Uh, if you're a, a, a little L, medium L, or even a big L leader, if you're a leader, you probably can solve lots of problems yourself. That's why you became a leader. And then when you hit a little bit harder ones, you tend to move outside of yourself to your team, those that are closest to you. And there's some wisdom there. And we all know that pure isolation puts a lid on you. Uh, and when, when we outgrow those insights, most of us have a tribe that we're comfortable with. It could be a denomination. It could be a theological construct. It could be all kinds of things. But there's an identifiable tribe. We go, oh, that's where the answers are. But what I've discovered is the answers to life's toughest problems are not found with me, my team, or my tribe. They're find, found outside my tribe. Uh, people that are not restricted by my paradigms don't necessarily see the world as I see it with the same boundaries. And uh, I, I find that lots and lots of leaders hit a ceiling in their family, hit a ceiling in their health, hit a ceiling in their, their preaching and their, their leadership skill set because they never get outside of their tribe. Um, and and they, they, they think that there's no wisdom out there. And, and then that, that becomes the end. I find that over and over. Let me give you an example. Uh, yeah. I think it's really well known. We did the first video venues that became multi-sites. Uh, in the early years, it was amazing to me how many people came by North Coast Church to see what we were doing. Um, and other churches that quickly adopted it and did it as, as well or far better than we were doing it. But nowadays, here's what I find people doing left and right. They go, oh, I visited one. 
I read a book on it. I'm going to go launch my own. And then they, they struggle with, well, why did that fail? And it's, well, because you tried to do it yourself, moron. <laughs> you, you, you're too arrogant to ask for advice. And I find that is a very common struggle, all the more so in a day and age of the Internet, Google, and at your finger. I, I love it. I tell my wife I live in a library with a librarian yeah. at hand. How cool is that? But that means I have a tendency to research everything myself and think I've got it solved. When all of the answers to the counterintuitive and tough stuff are find, found outside in networking and hanging around people who don't see the world like I see it. Can you give me an example of currently in your life, people outside your tribe, outside your family, outside your theological background that you're learning from and listening to? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I, I'm, I continue to do, but I'm going to go back early days. Uh, I would take out, I started, let me step back. Uh, I started uh, teaching Bible studies in my teens and was in vocational ministry very young. And that means all of my education, all of my experiences in vocational ministry. Well, when I became a pastor, I started taking out businessmen in my church, a banker, a, a developer, a, a builder, all kinds of people. And I would say, would you disciple me? And they look at me like, what? And I didn't always use that word, but I would pick their brain about their field. Um, and they were so used to a pastor taking them out to lunch to either ask for money or to teach them how to share their faith or read their Bible. And uh, I'm a 28-year-old punk kid. It's like, really? Some 45, 50-year-old guy's going to listen to me? So I would go out and I'd say, well, why'd you buy that property? How do you just make these decisions? Uh, how do you hire people? Why do you hire them? Uh, how do you think through finances? All of that. And I got a PhD in leadership. Uh, and amazing, some of these guys amazing. and gals had a great walk with Jesus, and some of them had a horrible walk with Jesus, and some didn't even have a walk with Jesus. But they had things I could learn. And now the backside of that is people come to me for all those kinds of things. I actually do some uh, business consulting of all the weird things. Uh, and where did that come from? Well, it came from me getting outside of my theological tribe and just asking people who had great fruit in an area, hey, how are you watering that tree? Because, uh, you know, when my plumbing's broke, I don't really care whether you have the fish on your truck. I care whether or not you know how to fix the pipes. <laughs> yeah. Do you, uh, does, does you, and that, those are great examples. Um, do you read outside your field? Do you listen, like in terms of podcast, audiobooks, or talks? Do you listen in an interdisciplinary way as well? Yeah, everybody uh, learns differently. And uh, I learn from 30,000 feet. That's kind of just the way I see life and then dive down when I have an interest. So one thing I do every day is I, I have uh, uh, Google News set up uniquely uh, for all kinds of areas, from entertainment to know what's going on there, uh, to medical, to uh, finance, to sport, you name it. And I read at 30,000 feet every morning this uh, potpourri of things that I've set up and then just figure out, oh, what do I want to take a deep dive in to? Uh, and it can be law. Uh, it, it just really weird, eclectic sort of things, and it gets me uh, outside of my natural zone. 
Uh, I found long ago that m- what you read in most books first shows up uh, in articles yeah. or blogs. So I try to catch it first and then I keep my eye open. Oh, there's that book I read about three years ago on fill in the blank. You strike me uh, not only in this interview, but in the time we spent together as a really curious person. Um, often the more you've led, the more you know, particularly with success, I find a lot of people become less curious. How, how do you maintain and cultivate your curiosity? Well, I think in, in one sense, everybody should cultivate it, but some of us are just wired to be more curious. That's what's life-giving to us. And, uh, I, I really can't tell you, I sat down and figured out something. Curiosity is life-giving to me. Uh, I probably, as I look back at my life, my wife and I were talking about it about every five to 10 years, I find some new area. I just want to learn about, uh, architecture for a little while. And then I, I love some stuff on design and gardening. And then I had a friend who owned a a winery and, Oh, okay. What about that? And I'm just, I find life in that, but I'm not sure everybody that had that watering schedule would find life in it. Uh, what I do know is all of us need to get outside of our natural comfort zone. Uh, and the problem is, here's one of the unique things when you asked earlier about a younger generation. Uh, one problem they have that we didn't have in the past is uh, we have so much ability to choose our echo chamber now that everybody lives in an echo chamber. I don't think that was as true in the past. You mean a self-selected community? Self-selected community. We, we used to be restricted by our geography. That's how we right. saw the world. Right. Uh, then there was a short time of monolithic media with just a few networks, and everybody experienced the same thing. Uh, and now we choose uh, what world we're going to live in. There's no news. I choose to live in the Fox world or the MSNBC world or the CNN world and um, no, nobody really is, is lit musically. It's the same thing. Yeah. There's uh, no common there's denominator no in music anymore. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, you're a youth pastor. What's youth music? Well, it depends on what youth you're talking to. And so I do think we have to work harder today to get outside of our echo chamber than we ever did in the past. Yeah, it's true. You know, even when I started in the nineties in ministry, I mean, your community was really determined by denominational lines and geographic lines. That was it. Because any, any outside, I mean, even consumption of content was usually a purchase or a trip. So you're buying a CD, a cassette tape, you were, you know, there was no internet to speak of other than some really primitive email. But you're right, we all have our own curated communities, and all of us do now. But that can become very self-selecting and very self-affirming and dangerously narrow. Yeah, and that's where you definitely will hit a lid. Again, not just in your ministry leadership, but in your marriage, your life, in every area when you live there. And by the way, one of the ways I know it's so strong for the culture, but also in ministry, is for whatever reasons, the Lord has allowed me to speak to all kinds of tribes. Yeah. So I can be at all kinds, uh, I can be at both ends of the spectrum two days apart on certain theological issues. But here is what I have learned. Uh, whatever group I'm with, there's a few code words I need to have thrown out within the first eight sentences, or their arms will remain crossed. And they're different code words, but uh, uh, groups are suspicious of somebody that's not them until I've thrown those code words out, and then those arms 
are uncrossed and the notes start being taken. It is the most bizarre thing, but it shows me how strong that echo chamber is. This belief there's no truth outside of those who think it like us. So in other words, you're proving your street cred. You're like, yeah, I get you. And then they're like, oh, okay, we'll listen to yeah, you. Totally. You know, hey, this is going to be more Proverbs and Romans with one group. And then suddenly like, oh, okay, he's theological and I, I can be practical. Uh, with another group, it's a, a, a statement about the work of the Spirit, just making sure that's really clear. Uh, just, and, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but here's the tragedy, is that so many people won't listen until you've, you know, said the secret code. Like, it's true. Really? Really? Hmm. And, and, and uh, culturally, that seems to be intensifying, not weakening. I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you, uh, your latest book, Lead Like a Shepherd, is, uh, is out, and uh, it's published by Next. They've done some great leadership material. And I, I was really intrigued by the title, because most people, there's a huge debate, which I'm sure you've seen in all of its forms, about shepherd versus CEO and what's wrong with leadership, and it rages online. And, you know, you lead a very large church, 13,000 people. How many locations now, Larry? Uh, we only count our local ones. Uh, the others yeah. are just we're pulpit supply. So locally, I think it's six. Yeah, well, that's a lot of campuses. You have a lot of locations. You're an influential church. And most people would say, well, with a church that size, like, what do you mean, shepherd? Like, how do you lead like a shepherd? I th- you know, most people think church of 150 people. I do all the pastoral care. That's what a shepherd means. Tell us, tell us why you wrote the book and what's behind it. Well, being a shepherd doesn't mean you're taking care of every individual lamb. It means you're making sure that every lamb is taken care of. Mm-hmm. And, and the CEO mindset, when it, it, it goes too far, says, well, I'm going to let someone else think about shepherding. Because obviously, once your church is a certain size, you can't counsel, you can't marry, you can't bury. Or if you do, you're going to be buried and you're not going to be married. Uh, That's true. But, but what I believe is very important is that we never lose the heart that we are making sure these things are done. We haven't passed them off to someone else. Uh, that might mean nothing more than walking around and checking to make sure it's done. You know, if I'm a CEO who's only getting the reports from everybody else that the shepherding's done, rather than go and testing it myself, I've lost my shepherd's heart. I need to go and find out, is this really being done? I have a series of little sayings on the whiteboard in my office, and, and one is, never let the cooks tell you how the food tastes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so, uh, no, I'm not, I'm not marrying you unless you're my friend, and I'm not burying you unless you're in my gro- uh, life group or you're my friend. Uh, but I, if I know you, I'll show up at the, the funeral. And, and what I am doing, and we try to do and think we do really well at North Coast, is We've created systems to make sure people are shepherded. We haven't thrown up our hands and said, well, it's just too hard. Somewhere around 300 to 450, people quit counting faces and start counting numbers. Mm. And I think at that point is when you hit the watershed moment where you make the decision, are we going to insist that people are shepherded? Are we going to go, well, it's too hard, so now we're just going to count how many show up? Because numbers lie. How so? Well, you can grow by 300 people over a year and go, wow, that was really wonderful. But what if you really grew by 450 and lost 150? Yeah. 
Yeah. You see, you can never know about the one that wanders off if all you're doing is counting numbers because you count them out and you go, well, uh, wow, there's 101 instead of 100. That's good. But you don't know who you've lost. You don't know who you lost. And again, you can't know everybody, but, but here's what blows my mind. Almost every church knows to the penny who gave what. Yeah. And I'm going, if you're counting to the penny, all the money that was given to you, but you're telling me you can't count to the face, the sheep that are mostly coming. You've just told me something very important about your heart and your church. And that is that money is more important than people. Because whatever you have to pay for accountants and systems and whatever, you've installed those things for the money. But you haven't paid the same price for the people. So with 13,000 people, you, and I know you write about this in Sticky Team, Sticky uh, Church. Uh, do you, sticky fingers. Sticky, sticky fingers. Everything. <laughs> you know pretty much who those 13,000 people are. Yeah, well, it, nowadays it's easy. It was much harder in the past. But one of the things we do is, is we have, uh, uh, October is our benchmark. So we take adult attendance average in October. And then in October, how many people are in our sermon-based life groups, lecture lab model? So it's not signups, but show-ups. But uh, what we do with those groups is we have 90-something percent of our attendance in them, and we do real-time attendance. You can do that in a group. Now, that meant we had to staff for it. So uh, I personally and uh, Chris Brown, our our other senior pastor, uh, uh, we don't even have full-time assistant. But our our life group system has four or five full-time assistants. Because we put our money and our energy in what's most important, and that's we need to know who's there. So we have real-time attendance there. You have real-time attendance probably in every church in your Sunday school type of programs. Uh, You have real-time ability with your giving. Well, that's probably a 75 to 80% quick look at who's here, who's not here. Yeah. But I'm shocked how many churches outside of giving, they have no real record of anything that they keep or look at. You said something really interesting that, you know, 85% of all churches are sub 200. Um, And uh, when I talk to a lot of those leaders, they're like, okay, well, let's, let's double it. Let's say there's four or 500 people or 700 people because 13,000 seems impossible to most leaders. And, but you said something that really, I think would be challenging for a lot of leaders. You said, Hey, I'm not going to do your wedding. I'm not going to do your funeral unless you're my friend or in your life group. How did you come to draw those arbitrary lines? And then how did you get people to accept that? Because there is, it's, it's a very similar thing for me too at Connexus. And, and people basically know, okay, yeah, like he just doesn't do funerals. He doesn't do a whole lot of weddings. You've, you've, but, but it seems arbitrary and it almost seems unpastoral. Well, I, one of the problems I think is people draw those lines way too early. Like you said, mm. you know, I did not draw those lines when North Coast was 350 people, when it was 400. Uh, I had to draw those lines when we had to have a Saturday night service because weddings are planned way in advance generally. And I don't know whether I'm on that week or somebody else is on that week. So that was a pretty easy one. Uh, at, at some point, I realized uh, that I was becoming a counselor. So I went to the board and was able to use their cover and uh, our our board requested that we not meet with anybody more than one time as an air traffic controller to help guide them where they need to be. Uh, and, and that solved it. But to this day, pretty much anybody can meet with me if they're willing to wait for that window in my schedule. They're told, 
it's one time. I know Chris Brown's assistant has a, a phrase that is, well, you can either get help or you can get Chris. Which do you want? <laughs> uh, if you really want Chris, you can wait out all these weeks and get it. But we've got the help for you right now. Uh, but again, that is we've been, we've put together systems where people really get help, not walls where they can't get to us. And there is a difference. I, I spent some time as an amateur counselor too, and I realized, man, I am in so far beyond my pay grade on this stuff, and I cannot fix your marriage, and I did not train for this. And eventually, I just started explaining to people when we were six, eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand people. It's like, look. I just, I'm not going to be able to help you. Like, I just, I, I, I didn't go to school for that. I don't have the training. I don't have the gifting. Would you like someone who can help? And that's really good. But, but walk me through in a really granular way because there's that bubble where, and, and I think we're past it now um, at Conexus, but, you know, that awkward thing where I'm going to do your wedding, but I'm going to say no here. And that, yeah. that does, if you have half a heart, that's a hard one. How, how did you navigate that? Well, let me start with this. There is a difference between saying I can't shepherd you and saying you can't get to me. Those are two different things. One is a wall and the other is I will help you get shepherded. So let's say I'm a shepherd and I've got 80 sheep. If one of them gets really sick and I take that, that lamb to the vet I haven't neglected my shepherding. But if I build a wall and none of the sheep can get to me, I have neglected it. So right. that, that word picture, I think, is really important to grasp. Too often we build a wall so people can't get to us to, quote, protect ourselves. Instead of saying, no, I'm going to put you first, but I'm going to get you to a vet instead of me. Right. There's a process in which you are, uh, in the early days, I would meet with people. And before the board said only one time, I might meet with you twice. I might pick up the phone to help set up an appointment with someone else. But now I was going from five meetings with you trying to duct tape it and spit your, your marriage together, hold it together, to two or three. So it's, it's not a sudden whack and boom, everything changes. It's a process. And at the heart, most people are going to understand that I'm taking you to the vet. I am making sure you're taken care of. If I meet you after church and you need some help, in fact, I just did it this morning. Uh, I went into one of the other pastors I'd gone to and I asked specifically, were you able to get hold of so-and-so? I didn't just write their name down, give it to somebody and not follow up. Yeah. When that staff pastor called, they said, Larry asked me to call you. Well, that took 10 minutes of my time and a little thing on my checklist of to do to make sure it was done. But it creates an aura and a DNA around here that people matter. Now, the other part of it granularly is this. You've got to get to the point that some people are such selfish pigs, you're going to let them go. Because some people will never understand that the flock is important and that they aren't the center of the universe. And my mentor taught me early on, he called it divine subtraction. He said, Larry, if you've lost a Christian selfish pig and they're going to another church, why are you feeling bad? How, what are some signs that they're a selfish pig and not just a needy person, Larry? Yeah, when somebody that doesn't know Jesus, that's a whole different thing. But right. 
But if if you're a consumer sitting there thinking, well, all power is in the person who speaks on the platform, then you don't really want help. You want me. Mm-hmm. And uh, there there is a difference. Yeah. And and they're not interested in getting better. They're interested Absolutely. in getting you. Yeah, I, I hold your hand and take you to the vet and, and then you squirm out and say, post on Facebook that, you know, hey, he didn't care. <laughs> like, really? Yeah. Okay. You in Lead Like a Shepherd, you talk about the professionalization of the clergy. Can can you talk about that? Well, the difference between a, a hired hand and a shepherd, according to Jesus, is the shepherd puts the needs of the sheep first. In the case of Jesus, literally laying down his life for them, whereas the hireling runs at the first sign of trouble. And I think too many of us have treated ministry as a career. I'm not against moving. Uh, I'm not against going to another place because your family or you are too beaten up. But I think too many of us leave too quickly because we think it's about me. We, we, We preach it's about the sheep. But we all our decisions are it's about me. It's about a bigger platform. It's about a better opportunity to use my gifts. Uh, when the heart of a shepherd says, what do the sheep need? And if I'm not willing to take care of the sheep God gave me, I have no idea why I should expect him to give me other sheep. And that was part of the problem in my early days at North Coast. I, I saw the sheep that I had as tools to use to get the sheep I wanted to get. So I wanted to motivate them to be out sharing their faith more, to be more missional, be more. But at, at the core, it really wasn't about Jesus. Uh, it was about helping me build the ministry that I thought God called me to do. Uh, and I could sense it when at one point I was tempted to go somewhere else purely because it was a better platform and I wasn't being fully appreciated here. Hmm. Huh. Like, I just wish more of us to lay down our career dreams. Again, not all of us, not all moving is bad, but we would lay down our career dreams. That's nothing compared to laying down his life for us. Can you walk us through, because I think we've all had those moments. You've been at uh, North Coast for how many years now? 30? Just hit my 38th anniversary. 38 years. 38 yeah. years. 23. I feel like a newbie uh, where I am with these people. But you mentioned feel unappreciated. Man, I think anybody who's stuck around for more than 10 minutes goes through those seasons where they feel unappreciated. What does that look like for you? And then how have you gotten through it? You know, there's a theological grid I think we have to go back to. You know, Romans talks about uh, the renewing of our mind. Trans- that's how we get transformed. And we've got to decide, it's one more of those things we preach but don't believe, servant leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, if, I, if, if I'm truly going to be a servant, uh, then that means I'm going to be taken advantage of. Now, I can't go to the point that it's hurting my marriage, it's hurting my kids and all that. That's where I draw the line. I can't go to the point where every selfish pig is driving me to an early grave. But uh, if... If I'm really a servant leader, when score is kept, I will have given more than I got. And I don't think most of us think that's okay. I will, Okay, I don't want to lose that. We will have given more than we got. That, that is the definition of, of, of service over the long haul. Absolutely. The other is just wow. pretending. 
Yeah, when people realize I'm one of the lead pastors here and I'm helped setting up or taking down tables and they'll go, oh, what a wonderful heart Larry has. That's really different than when somebody walks up and orders me around. Hey, move that table over here. It's like, hey, dude, don't you know I'm Larry? I'm pretending (laughs) to be a servant here. Don't treat me like one. Uh, Uh, I I don't know why a whole bunch of light bulbs went on when you said that, but that was extremely helpful. That, you know, at the end of the day, there are some relationships where you just give more than you're going to get. And that is the nature of servanthood. Yeah. And they can't be, uh, again, you can't live there with everything. You become a doormat. I mean, but, but yeah, Yeah. fundamentally it's not going to be this massive ego Russian reward that we all sinfully think it will be. Yeah. I mean, Paul was not appreciated by the churches he planted. Uh, read through the emotion of like, St. Corinthians or Galatians or whatever. And yeah. Jesus was hardly appreciated by the people he, he came to serve. Uh, uh, if, if all but one of the apostles died a martyr, why am I so crushed that somebody posted a mean thing on Facebook? Yeah. Or wow. left our church and took their money right in the middle of a building campaign or like, Really? Really? Are you are are you serious? Yeah, you have a chapter in the book, and they're short chapters. Willingness to be misunderstood—that's part of this, isn't it? Absolutely. I always tell people that one of your leadership lids is your ability to deal with frustration, and they always think I mean the internal frustration of leadership. Hmm. And I go, no, that's not what I mean. I mean people being frustrated at you. Wow. Because they don't understand. That's part of what leadership is. And if you need everybody's approval. And you can't live with people not understanding. You can't live with people talking behind your back to some degree. You're not ready to lead. Uh, I like what Solomon says uh, in uh, Ecclesiastes. Don't listen to every word that people say about you because you know that you too have, you know, said some rather unkind things about others. Hey, just let it go. Do your job. You've, you've also got a uh, no complaining rule. Do you want to unpack that for us? <laughs> Yeah, well, the whole book, Lead Like a Shepherd, is built on two passages. First uh, Peter 5, Shepherd the Flock right. Among You and How It's Done. And then the 23rd Psalm, which was the strongest, along with Jesus, image that his early readers would have had of a, of a, of a shepherd. And uh, one of the things he says is to do it willingly, okay, uh, not under compulsion and, and not just, quote, for money, right? Right. Um, and, and Jesus, here's the thing. We don't have to lead. I think that's part of the thing. If I'm complaining a lot, like, what am I complaining for? Leadership is a voluntary choice in the body of Christ. If anyone wants to set up my right or left hand, here's the path to get there. Not everyone should want to set at my right or left hand. Timothy, I'm leaving you here in Ephesus to take care of these churches and kind of help get them straightened out. If anyone desires to be an overseer, Here's what they must do. And we've turned it into everyone should aspire to leadership. Uh, I always just tell people, you know, I don't have to be a leader. What I do have to do is use my gifts. I would teach the Bible and and disciple people somehow, somewhere, but I could leave vocational ministry in a heartbeat and Jesus wouldn't be disappointed. Uh, He called me to ministry like he's called every saint. In fact, at North Coast, we don't even use the phrase called into ministry Uh, in in light of vocational ministry. 
because everybody's called into ministry. Vocational is just one option, and it is no higher calling than being a plumber for Jesus. Uh, the, we're all on the front lines. And so I say, listen, if you hate it, quit. Do something else. If you can't <laughs> find something else better, then you should quit complaining because you've got the best of all possible jobs. We do complain a lot in ministry, don't we? Yeah, it's human nature. Everybody complains. But the more we've been out in the marketplace, the more we would realize that it goes back to Genesis chapter 3. It's not unique to vocational ministry. Yeah, a lot of unhappy lawyers, plumbers, electricians, carpenters, nurses, doctors. Yeah, Yeah. there are weeds in every garden. Big weeds. No, you're very, very true. What would you... um, I think we've answered this. I was going to say, what would you say to the skeptical CEO who would say, shepherding doesn't apply to me? You know, that CEO type leader. It's like, yeah, thank you, but isn't it all systems? And, you know, if my systems are good, people are cared for. Any word to that person? It's a both and. You've got to speak to the person who says it's all about personally shepherding and they're down on leadership. And what they don't understand is the reason the New Testament doesn't write about leadership is it was written to a non-mobile culture in which churches were house churches. I don't know a lot about house churches, but I do know this. They didn't have a governing board, and you didn't need a lot of leadership skill. You needed chaplain skills, shepherding skills, etc. It was only with the rise of the automobile and churches becoming two, three, four hundred that we suddenly started to need leadership skills. And that's why until recent history, there wasn't much emphasis on that for pastors. But we, I think we swung the pendulum at times too far because we've decided that it's all about leadership and that leadership at its core isn't leading into shepherding. It's just leading into bigger. And, and that, that would be like a company that says, no, our goal is to sell our widgets, but not to have satisfied customers. Yeah, that's true. I go, well, dude, you might grow for a little while, but it's all going to implode. And that's what happens to churches that treat people as things and just want to get them in the front door. In the business world, it's, it's, a, it's a transactional uh, type of business. It's a real estate agent who treats everybody as a one-time sale instead of realizing, no, what's really important is multiple sales from the same people. Uh, and in our case, the CEO leadership should create systems so that the back door is slammed shut, not so my church gets bigger, but so that I can disciple people. No, you're right. I mean, ultimately, if you're Samsung or Apple or Tesla or whoever you decided or your software as a service company, at the end of the day, you're interacting with people. And if the phone isn't working, if it's catching on fire in your pocket or the battery's draining, you know, in two hours, at the end of the day, you're still, you're still dealing with people and their hopes and their dreams and their frustrations and and, you, and your success is going to be found in re, re, uh, retaining them. And in ministry, uh, it's not about reaching people, it's retaining them. Now, after a while, I want to send them off, obviously. But uh, like when, for instance, when I wrote Sticky Church, some people misunderstood. It's about closing the back door to get bigger. And I always said, no, it's closing the back door so that in a day and age where everybody leaves when they don't like something, uh, I've got them stuck, and therefore I can disciple them. I want to slam the back door shut so I can disciple you with hard truth, not so the church gets bigger. 
All right. And then again, the whole premise under that, if I remember correctly, it's been a year or two since I, I reread the book, but it's, it's based on relationship, right? That the stickiness is not sound doctrine. The stickiness is, well, I really don't like that Larry Osborne, but I'll tell you, my best friend is here and our neighbors are here. And now what am I going to do? Absolutely. Because people stay even in the sickest churches because of friendship. So that's why we work so hard on friendship here. Slam the back door, and then we can say hard things that we couldn't have said otherwise because everybody'd go run into the next church. Larry, you got a lot of wisdom. You've shared so much with leaders over the years and continue to do so. But just so you know, I, I think we all end up thinking, well, Larry doesn't really have any problems. So here's a question for you <laughs> Of all the things you write about or teach on, what are, what's a hard one for you to apply? It's like, you know how when you're teaching something and you're like, yeah, and this is just a continual issue. You talked about emptiness, for example, earlier. So I'll go first. Uh, My new book, Didn't See It Coming, last section's on emptiness. And a lot of that is like, yeah, tremendous success. And at the end, I catch myself feeling empty almost all the time. And now I know what to do. It's a call back, but like, I don't know whether that's ever going to go away or, or, you know, that kind of thing. So what, what would you say for you, has been an ongoing challenge, and how are you tackling it? My biblical hero outside of Jesus is Barnabas. Ah, Uh, When I played basketball, I was a point guard, which is about winning and distributing. Anybody who's read my stuff or knows me, I'm all about lifting up young eagles and giving away. We were one of the first churches in the country sharing the pulpit and stuff like that. Uh, And... I think what people don't realize is that it's still the hardest thing to do. Really? Uh, at the end of the day, as easy as quote it might look, or from afar it might sound, I still have to go home and feel sad sometimes that uh, someone else was picked first, or I'm no longer the one who has the spotlight on me at this particular point or issue or system or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I love to lift someone up. Uh, recently, uh, I helped uh, a guy named Mark Clark wrote a great book called The Problem yeah, of God. Yeah. And, and I helped Mark with some connections and all kinds of stuff on his book. And, uh, you know, my books have sold fairly well. Uh, but uh, when his book takes off like crazy like it did, there's a mixture of like, oh, huh, he's actually selling his book better than my book is selling right now. And, yeah. and then human nature steps in. And that was a tiny thing. That took me seconds to get over. But uh, it's, it's really easy to help people as long as you're on top. But when you've helped them up and now they're on top, I would be a liar to say that doesn't create a sense of angst. And that's when I have to go look in the mirror and say, Jesus, this is everything I dreamed of and everything you called me to. And get over it. Uh, but that unquestionably has always been the hardest thing when what I'm trying to do actually works. Why do you keep doing it? Because that's what Jesus said to do. And uh, I think it's, he, he birthed it in my heart theologically. I think he birthed it in me when he made me from the womb, just who I am. But I also had an interesting experience in high school. Uh, I played on one of the top teams in California And uh, I also played on a team where I was a superstar, and we were one in 17 or 18. On the top team, I came off the bench. On the other team, I was a superstar. 
And at the end of those days, I decided which was best. I'd rather be a little cog in a winner than the star of a loser. And, you know, there's a, there's a season in life, too, and, and Mark's a good personal friend, actually. He texted me right before we got, it, got started on this interview where, you know, how old's Mark? 38, maybe? And I'm just, I'm picking on him because he's a friend and we both know him and he's a super guy. And I couldn't, you know, I'm so excited about Problem of God. He's working on a new book, as you know. Uh, but there comes that strange point where you're not the young guy anymore. And where you realize, okay, now I have this platform and it's my job to help other leaders as well. And, and that's, a, that's a lesson that I think you mentioned. You've been doing that from the very beginning. It's easier when you cultivate that earlier, isn't it? Absolutely. And I cultivated it early because when I was just starting out, the people that I looked up to, uh, who wrote the books or had the bigger church or whatever, none of them were available when I was 28, 29, 30, church of 150, growing by a third person a year, they all look at you down their nose and want nothing to do with you. And then when I began to have some success and I no longer needed them, they were inviting me to come to their conference. <laughs> and and that, that, that birthed in me a desire. I wanted to be what I wanted others to be for me, and they weren't. Uh, and so to this day, you know, my assistant knows if pastor calls, I don't care if it's a church of 80 or 8,000, you know, they'll get through. Uh, and um, that, that's really what birthed it. I could not get help when I needed it. And then when I no longer needed it as much, everybody was wanting to be my friend. And so I just said, Lord, I want to be different. And one thing I try to do with the guys that are in their 30s and very early 40s that I work with now is to get them to not put up walls and to say, will you be as accept- you appreciate my accessibility? Will you pay that forward, please? We need to change our celebrity culture. Hmm. I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to say a whole lot more because I think that was so good. I'd, I'd kind of like just to park it there. Um, Larry, as we wrap up, is there anything else you want to share? Nope. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just like, I think I'm out of questions and I know we're going to do this again, but sometimes you just need to leave it and I'm going to leave it. Larry, the book, your latest book, and you've written a lot, it's called Lead Like a Shepherd, The Secret to Leading Well. Um, I just appreciate you so much, your guidance, your leadership, your friendship. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for the yeah. opportunity. So rich, and I honestly have like about 500 questions to ask him next time he's on the show. It's funny, you know, uh, every once in a while you think, okay, am I going to have a guest back on? Like, you know, what am I going to ask him about this time? Because, you know, several hundred episodes in, some people are on three or four. And honestly, just spending those days with Larry Osborne a few weeks ago, one-on-one, I I literally have like episodes worth of questions for him. So you're going to hear from him again. Uh, make sure you check everything out in the show notes. You can find it at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 229. And uh, check out remodelhealth.com forward slash carry and pushpay.com forward slash carry. I really think if you check those guys out now, 2019 is going to be a lot better. You're going to see cost savings on healthcare and you're going to see giving go up. That's a pretty cool combination because I know guys, This is budget time, right? True story. So go to those now, pushpay.com forward slash carry 
and remodel health forward slash carry and check out the savings that are there for you as podcast listeners. Hey, we are back next week with a fresh episode. Let me tell you what is coming up. I am uh, pretty excited about the lineup that we've got. So um, this guy had a huge impact on me years ago. We talk about it. Pete Scazzaro is going to be my guest and he's going to talk about honestly and Raleigh, why so many leaders are so emotionally immature and how to tell whether that's you. Here's an excerpt. We're so unaware of how much of that comes from family scripts with a conditional love and yet we're preaching grace, but really we are, we're living a law and we actually end up giving that to people around us. And why aren't they being, why are they feeling a heavy yoke from my leadership versus a freedom? Because I'm sitting in a meeting and I'm driving this vision but that drivenness is not coming out of a deep place with Jesus. It's coming out of my own unresolved trauma and family of origin stuff that I haven't thought about. And people in the room can feel uncomfortable, but hey, I'm the leader and I'm gifted, so they're going to follow. You know, it's, it's, they work for me, and, but you can feel it in the room. Well, that's next week, guys. And uh, coming up in, well, before the end of the year, we have Daniel Pink, John Thompson, Christine Birch. And a whole lot of others. John Van Pay, he is the lead pastor of the fastest growing church last year in America and so much more. Plus an incredible 2019 coming for you too. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.